Welcome to this week's episode of Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Amorgan, and I'm alone this week. Chris is out of town, and Vaquel has some work stuff to do. So, here I am. So, today we're going to be talking about 5G for the most part. And we're also going to be talking about a few other topics, like, well, WhatsApp, and <laughs> them pretty much trying to go after WeChat in a few senses, and also the fact that Samsung and Roku TVs are getting hackable. Let's dive right in. So, 5G. You've probably heard about it in passing here and there, or if you're really into the tech scene, then you've probably heard about it quite a lot, but not really seen anything much to go on. Um, and you wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you for that, to be quite honest. Uh, 5G has been the unicorn that could not be caught for some time now. And I think that has a lot of things to do with just simply the technology that we've had up to this point. I mean, we are talking about the same set of people that once called 4G having about, what was it again? 100 uh, megabyte, megabytes per second while moving and one gigabyte per second, well, gigabit per second. Uh, yeah, one megabit per second, and, sorry, 100 megabits per second and one gigabit per second when you're standing still. We've yet to really and truly hit those measurements um, for, the, for a lot of different places across the world with only a few really even coming close. Now, this has been a, an ongoing process. We have had 1G, we've had 2G, which was Edge, 3G, uh, we've had 4G, which they're still technically on right now, even with LTE, and calling it 4G LTE or LTEU or LTE Advanced, it's still all 4G. It's not 5G at all. 5G was actually just only kind of defined as a standard by the ITU only just recently. And uh, yeah, we're still, we're still not quite there. But 5G in essence is a type of wireless technology and the G stands for generation in case you didn't know that. Now, for most of these previous generations, they've mainly been data transmission based. So, that pretty much means like, okay, 1G was was analog cellular, so that's like TDMA and stuff like that. 2G was like CDMA, GSM, actually no, 2G was TDMA, sorry, my bad. Uh, and that was the first kind of digital cellular technology. 1G is like the brick phones. Uh, 3G technology is like Evdu, uh, HSPA, MT, sorry, UMTS, whereas... Um, 4G brought in things like WiMAX or uh, LTE. There was that whole thing about whether HSPA Plus was 3.5 or 3.9. A lot of people just started classing that as 4G as the precursor to things like LTE, which then started to get rolled out a little bit afterwards. Now, those particular ones, they're scaling up to hundreds of megabits and even gigabits per second, which is what it's supposed to be up to. 
but um again we're still not quite there 5g on the other hand instead of trying to bring speed like the other ones were is more about bringing well yeah it's bringing speed as well to move more data but it's also bringing lower latency and more capacity and the ability to connect a lot more devices on which is essentially the same thing as the capacity now these are three very very important things one because we do need more connections and like faster internet speeds as things move along i mean just look at what landline is now in certain parts of the world with two gigabit connections uh for landline in japan and some parts of the united states have one gigabit and i mean it's speed is being required and it's not just going to alleviate it to say okay well you have it in this area if it's only you there then great you're going to get those kind of speeds and that's where the capacity comes in because the more capacity you have that means the more people that you can hold on it without starting to scale back on the speed so it kind of works hand in hand more speed more capacity more speed for the average person even when more people are inside the area now the other one inside there is latency now if you don't know what that means it pretty much means the how fast it takes for you to connect to the server that you're connecting to and if you're doing something like gaming you probably know that word quite well because you know the, if you have a long latency that means things are going to take longer before they actually happen that's the difference between saying you pressing a button on a controller and then having to wait 10 seconds before it actually happens on the TV screen in front of you. That's essentially what latency is. It's how long it takes for your action to then hit the server for that to then happen. And then even for that reaction then to come back to you is another set of latency. So the lower the latency that you can get, the better it is. The higher it is, the worse you are at. So now that we have a little bit of an understanding there, the 5G radio system, which is going to be known as 5G NR, will not be compatible 100% with 4G. That's right. So while 4G within itself is not 100% compatible with uh, 2G and 3G, in terms of the calls, because then it has to switch over from the GSM network to the LTE network, for it to then switch between data and voice, uh, you're going to have pretty much the same kind of problem with the 5G network and the LT, sorry, the 4G network. Um, again, initially, much like how it is with 4G right now, it's going to have to lean onto it for certain elements until 5G starts to pick up. So, for example, voice over LTE. Uh, once that becomes mainstream, for example, for a lot of places, most places won't need the old 2g and 3g networks anymore because well you can make you can be on the internet and make your voice calls on the one 4g lte network uh with 5g you're probably gonna have to do the same kind of thing use it for voice and then use the 5g network for your data elements now that's not to say 4g won't improve over time because it is, it has been slowly and slowly improving, like with uh, LTE Advanced, LTEU, which is something that I think uh, T-Mobile was doing to try and 
help it pass through walls a bit better. Which I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But uh, you have to be very careful when companies will start talking about they're bringing out a 5G network or this 5G evolution like what AT&T is doing. Essentially what they're giving you is just a slightly more enhanced 4G network. So yeah, you're gonna you're gonna want to pay some attention to what they're actually doing and what they're saying and what the specs are before you try to jump on the bandwagon. Now, how does 5G really work? Much like other cellular networks, it's going to be using a system of cell sites. That's those same big towers that you would have seen around and about. But it takes it just a little bit different. So instead of it just being those same regular towers as well, like how it is now where, you know, you need the towers, you need uh, hardwire running to those towers, and then everyone within those area it needs to connect to that one tower. It's a little different and it actually adds a bit more flexibility than say something like LTE would, which makes it a bit more viable to use as well, home-based internet, for example, instead of actually having to run wire into your home and that kind of thing. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, I'm just a bit excited. But I'm actually starting to talk about this. Now. <sighs> okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. Now, the standard way that things will work is from a low frequency to a high frequency, but it gets the most benefit over 4G at higher frequencies. Even though at lower frequencies, it's able to penetrate into homes and businesses and stuff like that much better because the lower the frequency, the easier it is to pass through things like concrete and brick walls. Uh, that's because of like the photons and a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not going to get into, but it it's kind of interesting that 5G works better at higher frequencies than it does at lower frequencies. Now, 5G may also try to transmit things over the same type of frequencies that Wi-Fi does, which is interesting. And that's, that's pretty much what I was talking about that T-Mobile is going to be trying to do. Um, and it's not going to conflict with your Wi-Fi network. If you know anything about Wi-Fi networks is that if you have a bunch, say on a particular band, then it's going to start conflicting and it's starting to slow down your network and stop you from connecting may cause you to disconnect a lot of different little freaky things will probably start to happen and when you actually use some programs that can or even tools that can help you identify which frequencies are free for you to actually connect to and they actually help you with your wireless signals this on the other hand your Wi-Fi could be on and this will be on on the exact same frequency and you're not going to have any problems. So that's nice within itself as well. So essentially you could have the wireless signal running from the road, getting ahead of myself again, but running from the road, providing you internet access to your router that they would have given you or modem or whatever. And then that would then be providing wireless network inside your home without any cross feedback from anything and it'll be working just great. Now, 
let's move on past that just a bit. Now, even though we have these big, huge towers all across our country, and I'm sure your country as well, we probably, with 5G, won't be seeing that as much. Why? Because of things called microcell sites. Now, or in other words, small cell sites. They could still be towers, or they could just be little things attached to buildings on the side of them at certain points, like up higher, lower, wherever it is. And they pretty much feed and bounce off of one another to send information and make sure that they're all connected. In other words, it could also be using another technology called MIMO, M-I-M-O. If you're interested in that, feel free to look that up. That's another thing that I'll probably get into in another episode and another point. But now those small cell sites, like I mentioned, they can be to the size of home routers. So, okay, yeah, I'm kind of getting back to where I was going before. And so I'm not going to be using those uh, big, huge ass towers that go over long distances. I'll be using something small that pings off of someone else's and reaches back to the road, making sure that I get internet access. It doesn't slow anyone else down. It's just passing along information. And that's how the technology is actually built. Now, that's part of the reason as well why network capacity also needs to be built out. Because the more cell sites that you have, the more data that you can get into your network. So once again, hand meet hand. Now, 5G needs to be a smarter system than it currently is. Well, than our current systems are, I should say. Because it's juggling a lot more different types of stuff. You're probably going to be using this for a lot more um, Internet of Things type of solutions. Uh, we're probably going to be getting it for clothing that is smart clothing for our patients in the hospitals, for self-driving cars. I'll get into the uses a little bit later on. But overall, the goal is to have far higher speeds, far higher capacity, and lower latency than anything else that we've had so far. In terms of wireless, at least. Now, <laughs> they're aiming for 5G to pretty much like be at about 20 gigabits per second and one millisecond latency one millisecond is beautiful that 20 gigabit per second that's going to take some time one okay here's, here's an example for the latency part landline connected to cable or dsl or whatever it is that you're probably using you could probably get around anywhere between three to 11 milliseconds when you're up to 11 that's that's typically like when you start to start getting pissed off at a game because things are ag reacting slower than you want them to what you generally want to be is like seven and lower if anything so when you reach 30 uh, milliseconds you are bad 100 you are probably crying um but 20 gigabits per second and one latency that's going to be interesting 
I'll give some examples as to why that's going to be interesting in a little bit, though. So, there's a lot of places that are saying they're going to be launching it. And a lot of them are saying, like, 2019, 2020, uh, 2022, somewhere up in there. Um... Some saying <laughs> early next year, late this year. We're going to have to wait and see because people like to say stuff and then it actually not come true. We'll see. As for where I am in the Bahamas, they don't even talk about that. They're, they're talking about uh, LTE and not even really talking about LTE advanced at that. So time will tell. So what's the real purpose of 5g well let's use some examples from the states verizon wants to use it as a home internet service kind of like what i was talking about earlier about using it and like port use building a line out by the road and using small cell sites to distribute internet throughout an area let's say a community or a uh, bunch of houses down another road or whatever it is or a bunch of houses along that road so they don't have to build out lines to each and every house. They just hit the road and that's all the line that they need to build. AT&T is going for the whole smartphone element of it. And, you know, that makes sense because, you know, you want faster internet speeds on your smart devices, uh, like your tablets and your smartphones. And, you know, you can't fault them for that, especially considering the fact that, you know, a lot of, well, in this year's CES, we saw some uh, laptops taking in mobile chip uh, processors and whatnot, like uh, the Snapdragon from Qualcomm, which technically makes it a mobile device at that point. <laughs> I, I dare to call it. So if you have devices like that starting to step into the foray, which allows you to place in a SIM card or connect to a wireless network like that, then yeah you're gonna need definitely faster internet speeds and more capacity to fit on all these different things that are going to be going on so an example in olu finland where 5g is really being developed and they actually have a development center there they there are some places that are doing things like game streaming services where much like how I'm talking to you on Twitch right now, if you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening on the podcast, then, uh, you know, this is probably going to be a method that you can use to watch me on. Well, at least based on the internet. You can do it to keep a hold of your stroke rehab patients and because there's actually that whole VR thing that actually helps them when they are going through rehab and readjusting their senses and everything like that after the stroke. There are smart bandages that can track your healing. I'm not sure I probably would use one of those, but I mean, that is still a thing. There are ways for parents to interact with babies who are stuck in incubators, so they can still have like a screen there, connects to the wireless network, and so you can still interact with your child and see them, make sure they're living, breathing, still being okay especially since they're still at that uh, very fragile stage, I should pick. Um, and all of these things need higher bandwidth, lower 
latency and here's another thing low power now that's another aspect of 5g right there it doesn't use as much power as 4g and the other ones it's actually very power um, efficient so yeah these towers aren't going to be drawing or these cell sites i should say aren't going to be drawing as much energy as previous ones which can save you money perhaps in the fact that you know now the companies don't have to spend as much money to provide electricity to these things and they they will eventually get rid of the towers i'm hoping let's say we go with verizon's idea you just run a line and put one main thing inside of one particular block that provides internet access to everyone that's on the block because they have their own thing that's tying into that um so you don't need to spend the money for starters to build a huge tower you don't need to spend the money to run the cable to, into the tower you don't need to spend the money to keep the upkeep on the tower you don't need to spend the money to keep the tower running with energy as much as you do with a small cell site that's probably like this big that can provide internet access to an entire block instead of a tower that's going to maybe catch i don't know six seven blocks you can save a lot of money and that money that's being saved could then result in a lower fee for your services that's an idea now guess what else is going to benefit from 5g you didn't guess it it's driverless cars or self-driving cars now these things they currently already work as they are with ai and learning and everything like that but eventually it's going to come to the point where they're going to want to start talking to one another making sure they're avoiding each other properly um and you know sending information talking about traffic sending that kind of information off so that you know it already knows okay well we've got a car over there that's maybe like three blocks away they're stuck in traffic let's turn through this way we know a better route you know things like that and not only that sometimes you need split um decision set uh, wow. split second decisions and the lower latency is going to help with that part as well but uh. so because these cars are then talking to each other and sending very small packets of information you need that low latency now uh, because it it pretty much happens instantly and so when a packet of data shoots between two cars for example or bounces from a car to a small cell site to onto that's on a lamppost to another car then you know all that kind of works together really 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 well another aspect of it is that you know the whole many devices thing which we seem to be going for nowadays 4g can handle you know a whole lot of stuff but like i mentioned before it's expensive it's power consuming and it only has a lesser amount of capacity not only that but the whole service plans thing which still raises the thing like how are you going to connect your smart bandages to your cellular network when one sim card costs you a certain amount and then the data from that you know you're going to have to spend for an additional thing so on and so forth and it just becomes confusing it, it starts to hurt your head 
So, and you don't want another package for another number just to put inside your briefcase that you have rolling around with you inside the airport. I mean, come on. That's at a certain point, you know, you have to have, you have to have the carriers working with you. And for the carriers to work with you, you need the technology to be able to work with you. So. Huh. Overall, 5G will pretty much allow for small, inexpensive, low-power devices to connect to it. And so it's going to get a lot of small devices to work with it. Not only that, it can work probably very well with eSIM technology, which means that you don't have to worry about SIMs at all. And they can probably work together along several different uh, using the same number and the same package across multiple different devices so that you don't have to worry about it. And, I mean, maybe because there is such a high uh, capacity and you don't have to worry so much about that or the speeds, maybe they'll also either wait, increase the amount of data that you get or uh, get rid of data caps, especially if you're going to be using it for in-home stuff. Um, I think I know there was a company that had a cap. Well, the average person inside their home uses about 190 gigs a month. There's no uh, mobile package that can really satisfy that properly unless you don't have a whole lot of people on your network. So. Again. With phones. It's going to allow for the whole virtual and augmented thing because, you know, you're going to be able to connect and see things and things are going to be able to load up faster, which is great. Uh, VR headsets, they can work with those as well. The low latency and consistent speeds give you that. It didn't allow you for a better gaming session or streaming or playing games. Uh, even doing just business stuff on the road having a live conference with your partners, so on and so forth. And again, home routers, let's not forget that idea. You know, those can become small cell sites and save a whole lot of money for everyone. And you also don't need to wire up your house for starters either and have an electrician come in and wire everything up and run it through your house, spending a whole bunch of money for that. So yeah, that's, that's, 5g in a nutshell it's taken me about a little over half an hour to actually get through all of that i apologize i've really wanted to talk about this topic for a while now um if you've got comments feel free to post in the chat uh, and uh i do want to say that qualcomm has signed up with about 19 sorry i think it's 18 major companies uh which include let me see those working with Qualcomm technology include OEMs such as Asus, Fujitsu uh, Limited, Fujitsu Connection Technologies Limited, HDM Global, which is the home for Nokia phones, HTC, Ensego, Novatel Wireless, LG, Netcom Wireless, Netgear, Oppo, Shop Corporation, Sierra Wireless, surprised by that one, Sony Mobile, Telet, Vivo, the same company that's now bringing us on-screen fingerprint scanners and that beast of a phone I talked about back in episode 20. Uh, WingTech, WNC, Xiaomi, and ZTE. So those are the OEMs that are pretty much working to commercialize the 5G network. <sighs> Which, unfortunately, 
I'm not hearing anything from Apple or Samsung on that front. So that's a little surprising, but at the same point, uh, Apple probably is going to be going towards Intel for their chips and Samsung is, uh, for the most part, globally, using their own Samsung's uh, Exynos chip as well. I know in the States they're probably going to be using Qualcomm, but again, we haven't really heard them being listed. So, on to the next, which is, what again? We're talking about Samsung and Roku. Now, unfortunately, I've had a problem with Samsung's smart TVs for a while. So I might be kind of biased and biased on the fact that, you know, I was looking for a smart TV, almost got a Samsung, heard that they were having issues with their TV screens and them not being all that great. And I went with an LG um, smart TV. To this day, I don't regret it, especially considering that not long after I bought my LG TV, I found out that Samsung was listening into everyone via the voice capabilities of their TV screen, which was not cool. And they got a lot of hell for that. But now it's being touted that, you know, uh, hackers can quite literally get access to your, both your Samsung TVs and your Roku TVs. And they don't even need to be near you. So they can quite literally control your TV from hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Now, apparently, let's see. Consumer Reports dragged a bunch of its, and I'm, I'm reading from uh, Point Point. Yeah. Anyway, I'm reading from Point Point. And they're saying that Consumer Reports dragged a bunch of its top-rated smart TVs back into its labs to reevaluate them, checking to for hard, checking them hard to reevaluate. Sorry, checking them for hard to evaluate information security risks and defects, which are normally not factored into its ratings that it typically does on devices. The Consumer Union, the organization that publishes these reports is building out its information security capacity, working with partner organizations to evaluate and expose the security risks and collateral damage from bad information security design policy. Now, in the reevaluation of the smart TVs, they found that these devices worked beautifully. Sorry, that while they worked beautifully, they failed miserably in that they can be remote controlled by malicious parties and they harvest and transmit mountains of data about you and your viewing habits back to their manufacturers who then take that information for themselves and pretty much do anything they want with all that data on the basis of obscure permissions granted deep in the unreadable paste bomb of terms and conditions that you have to click through to use your device. I, I pretty much used a little bit of uh, ad lib in there, but that's almost verbatim according to the site. Now, they say that worse, the manufacturers can't even succeed at failing. When notified of the issues with their devices, Roku shrugged its shoulders and insisted that there was no problem. And it turns out that if you dig deep into the preferences screen for your TV and turn off all of the data harvesting, 
harvesting. The TVs also disable all the useful features that distinguish them from dumb TVs, features that could function perfectly well without all the surveillance activities. Consumer Reports noted that non-smart TVs were becoming a rarity, especially high-quality, large-format sets, aka 4K, and uh, which are now almost universally smeared with fecal mat. Oh, okay, I'm not going to read that. They, this site is saying that they recently experienced a microcosm of this when they bought a large format LG monitor. Okay, that's interesting. Only to discover that buying a set without networking compatibilities and an insecure system on a chip without, with a web server, etc. was $100 more than buying one that shipped with a bunch of useless, easily exploited anti-features. Okay. The one ray of hope they said virtually was that all of these practices will be radioactively illegal under the EU's forthcoming general data protection regulation. That's great for the EU, not so much for anywhere else. But they're saying that you could buy just an old-fashioned dumb TV without all the built-in streaming capabilities. These are becoming harder to find, so on and so forth. If you do buy a new smart TV, decide whether you want to block the collection of viewing data. If so, pay close attention during setup. There you can agree to the basic privacy policy and terms of conditions, which still trigger a significant amount of data collection while declining ACR. Digital Trends pretty much talks about it as well, but their own is pretty much saying don't panic. Now, from what I'm understanding, that for the Roku platform, it has an API that's turned on by default, technically allowing someone from thousands of miles away to change channels, adjust volume, or play offensive content. But in order for this to actually happen, you would need to be using a mobile device or laptop on the same network as the Roku device. Then accidentally visit a malicious website or click a link in a phishing email, giving the attack, sorry, giving the attacker remote access to the system. So that's you, the owner, being on your phone or laptop on the same network as the TV, clicking a link, which isn't all that hard. And a lot of people do that kind of stuff. And that then gives them access to your network. Well, to your TV, at least. Now, Roku is saying that they're making a big deal out of something much smaller and saying that the Consumer Reports got it wrong, but so says Roku's vice president. And that it is a mischaracterization of a feature and says that there's no security risk for customers and says that if you want to be extra safe, you can turn off this API by setting remote control to disabled in the advanced system settings. Which, you know, when you really think about it, you should, probably should do that anyway. Like, I don't want to be able to remote control my Roku TV from work. What, what purpose is that to control my TV at home? Additionally, the representative, well, a representative told Digital Trends that Roku takes security very seriously. There's no risk to our customers' accounts or to the Roku platform, as stated by Consumer Reports. But the Samsung TV's vulnerability is very specific, so it was harder to spot. In this case, the user would have to have had previously used a remote control app for the TV on a mobile device. And I am immediately thinking about the Samsung devices that had remote control capabilities, like the uh, 
Galaxy S devices. Um, then open a malicious website using the same device, giving the attacker remote control under of the same features that the remote control app would then have been able to control. And the, Samsung is saying that it plans to change this API to eliminate the vulnerability in a 2018 update. They haven't given any exact timing, but the update will be released as soon as technically feasible. So essentially, it's the same kind of vulnerability, the same method of it for the most part. I'm unimpressed. But I'm also not surprised. Lastly, we have WhatsApp. WhatsApp is a messaging system that is owned by Facebook and it is used worldwide. It's one of the most popular ones, I think maybe under WeChat. And it's kind of funny as to what they're going for right now as it's almost vying to try and knock WeChat down a little bit in my eyes. Now WeChat is pretty much a Chinese-based uh, communications application, mainly for text, but it can be used for a lot of other things. Um, like for in China, I believe you could also use it to buy stuff from places and so on and so forth. And it has its own kind of ecosystem. Now, WhatsApp doesn't have that same kind of ecosystem. It does allow you to send text messages and the basic like messenger system uh, it is encrypted. It allows you to make phone calls and has Instagram slaps, Snapchat, like uh, story features that disappear after 24 hours. So what they're doing now is that they're actually allowing for payments to go through in India. And that's pretty much taking a page right out of WeChat's book. And like I mentioned earlier, they allow for you to buy stuff. What this is doing is that they're allowing you to use a payment feature in India that allows you to send money from one person to another person. So, for example, if I'm in India and I've got a friend there, I can then connect it to my card or bank account and transfer them money to say like, oh, well, thanks for lending me that money from that time ago. Uh, I'm paying you back. Or they can use it for business purposes to say, okay, well, I've been to your store. Here, just WhatsApp me the money. And there you go. Now it's currently in beta. And again, it's only happening in India, which is kind of surprising considering that, well, that's not really surprising because WhatsApp is the thing that's surprising is WhatsApp is more popular in India than Facebook is. And I guess that's because of the whole people liking their own, uh, secure method of messaging one another. Now, from what I understand, the company has been working to support payments for some time. If I remember correctly, let me see. They were actually working on this from uh, around April 2017. And they were saying it was going to be launched within six months. So obviously they've kind of gone past that date and it's only starting to be released as a beta now. And they've been working with the UPI or Unified Payments Interface, 
which and also includes support by a number of Indian banks, such as the State Bank of India, ICICIC, sorry, ICICI Bank, FDC, FDFC Bank, and Axis Bank. Now, beta testers have been finding that the functionality is live with a large list of supported banks displayed in WhatsApp interface, um, like the State Bank of India, the Yaz Bank, Airtel Bank Payment, sorry, Airtel, Airtel Payments Bank, uh, Al Akbar Bank, uh, so on and so forth. There's, there's actually quite a lot. And if you go to iPhone Hacks, you can actually see an article there that is actually shows like a screenshot of it. Now, according to other screenshots posted to Twitter and other places, including uh, iPhone Hacks, those who have gained access to this beta feature uh, we'll see payments feature appearing in the WhatsApp settings menu. So it'll be there. Uh, you go to WhatsApp payments. You can then, it then says send and receive money securely with UPI. Tap and accept and continue to accept the WhatsApp payments. Uh, privacy and, sorry, terms and po privacy policy in the payment providers terms and privacy policy. You click accept and continue. There you are asked to configure the feature by first verifying the phone number via text message. It's kind of weird because you would have had to do that at some point anyway. And then choosing a bank. Once you've chosen your bank, then you choose the method of payment. Um, and then you can say the you can send the payment from the main WhatsApp interface in the same area where you can share photos, videos, so on and so forth. So the same little paperclip thing you just click on that and i guess you'd say uh let me see what it's right so it says camera photo and video library document location contact and this new one would be payments so apparently facebook has received approval from the indian government to integrate it into its messaging service last july according to the economic times but at the same time that also puts it into competition with ones like WeChat. There's also the recently launched Tez, uh, Google Hike, well, Google Payments, uh, Tencent-backed Hike, which is the same, well, another company from China. Tencent is a Chinese company. And um, that also makes it in the form of a digital wallet platform like Paytem, which expanded to messaging to take on WhatsApp more directly as well. Now, because of the high population in India that use WhatsApp, they're probably gonna make bank using this. And it's apparently a really highly anticipated feature already. Now, apparently it's WhatsApp's Indian market is already around 200 million users in that one country alone. And that's, active daily users not overall so apparently it's so heavily used in that country that it's even led to issues as indians grapple with social norms involving daily messaging ranging from phone storage filling up with good morning messages that sounds kind of familiar to drama over exiting family group chats also sounds kind of familiar uh, uh i'm reading this part from TechCrunch right here 
though they say that the potential for WhatsApp to dominate Indian pay to, um, P2P or peer-to-peer -peer payments is strong given that millions of people have come online in the region thanks to lower cost data plans and cheap smartphones. The country surpassed the United States for combined iOS and Android downloads for the first time in the last quarter of 2017, according to App Annie, which is a site that deals with downloads and like analytics from the app stores. Um, as smartphone adoption is surging, and they will WhatsApp will let people know when the P2P payments becomes more widely available in India after the beta testing phase completes. And I guess eventually maybe some other places across the world. Let me know your thoughts in the comments. If you're watching on YouTube, feel free to let us know inside the next week's episode what you think on Twitch or, you know, talk about it with friends. That's it for this week's episode of Tech Talk. I'm, again, your host, Michael Armagon. Join us next week for eSports Wrap at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's on a Tuesday. And then back again on Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for another episode of Tech Talk. Until next time, take care.